0: previously on Breakdown.
1: Let there be no doubt, while I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. I accept the finality of this outcome, which will be ratified next Monday in the Electoral College. And tonight, for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of
2: our democracy, I offer my concession.
3: The 2020 election was rigged and stolen and now our country is being destroyed by people who got into office through cheating and through fraud. I think, considering
1: that Trump is pretty clearly a target of the investigation, or certainly is at very least a person of very considerable interest, he's in the middle of everything. The heart of the investigation is his own phone call. He and many of his cronies, admitted cronies, have been called to testify I think it's unthinkable that the guy in the very middle of this, and the guy whose phone call started it all, would not be called in an investigation.
0: Welcome back to Season 9 of Breakdown, the podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution covering Georgia's most important cases. We are continuing our coverage of the special purpose grand jury investigation into what happened here after the 2020 presidential election. I'm Bill Rankin, the AJC's legal affairs reporter.
4: And I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Coming up, we take a deep dive into the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. This is Episode 13, Who's Rico? Of Season 9 of Breakdown, The Trump Grand Jury, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
3: Ocean breeze.
4: Tropical beach. Pina Colada.
3: You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise,
0: the ajc's trusted veteran political voices greg Bluestein, patricia murphy tia mitchell and bill nigett are the essential source for georgia politics the atlanta journal constitution's politically georgia sign up for the newsletter download the podcast subscribe to the ajc former white house chief of staff mark meadows had been scheduled to appear before the special purpose grand jury on september 27th well that came and went with no appearance by meadows
4: in august He was served an out-of-state material witness subpoena where he lives in Pickens County, South Carolina. If you remember, a local judge there initially has to decide whether Meadows has to go to Atlanta to testify.
0: It's usually pro forma as far as out-of-state witness subpoenas go, but in this case, court hasn't been in session, so Meadows has yet to have that initial hearing. The court looks like it will finally convene sometime in mid-October, then we'll know. If the South Carolina judge rules Meadows must testify before the special grand jury, he could still appeal, just like U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham is doing.
4: Here's what District Attorney Fonnie Willis told our friend Richard Elliott at Channel 2 Action News not long after Senator Graham first began fighting his out-of-state witness subpoena.
5: It is my hope that Senator Graham will have a moment of quiet reflection um, and decide to bring truthful testimony before this grand jury that wants to hear from him on some very important issues.
0: Of course, that never happened. Here's Graham at a press conference a few weeks ago. We
1: will take this as far as we need to take it. I was chairman of the Judiciary Committee. I had to vote on certifying an election. This is ridiculous. This weaponization of the law needs to stop. So I will use the courts and we'll go as far as we need to go and do whatever needs to be done to make sure that people like me can do their job without fear of some county prosecutor coming after you.
4: Graham's appeal is now before the Federal Appeals Court in Atlanta. He's arguing that the Constitution's Speech or Debate Clause prohibits Fulton prosecutors and grand jurors from asking him about what he said during two phone calls with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, why he called him, whether anyone prompted him to call him, and what he did about it afterwards.
0: Graham's appeal has attracted some attention in the form of amicus briefs filed before the appeals court. They're also called friend of the court briefs and they're often filed by an individual, an organization, or a governmental body that is not a party to the case, but who claims to have a vested interest in the outcome. So they're offering to assist the court with their takes on the law and explain why the parties they are supporting should prevail.
4: In Graham's case, the state of Texas, joined by nine other states, filed an amicus brief in support of the South Carolina senator.
0: The nine states are Alabama, Florida, Indiana, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, South Carolina, and Utah.
4: The brief, filed by Lenora Pettit, Principal Deputy Solicitor General of Texas, says 43 states have speech or debate clause provisions in their constitutions, and their legislators need to conduct their official duties without fear of future litigation. Pettit
0: writes that U.S. District Judge Lee Martin-May's order requiring Graham to testify is overly broad, if not entirely inappropriate. She asserts that Graham's phone calls were legislative functions, and she tells the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals it should stay May's order and stop the grand jury investigation to allow Graham's appeal to continue in full.
4: There's also an amicus brief from the ultra-conservative Eagle Forum Education and Legal Defense Fund and the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Eagle Forum was founded by the late conservative activist Phyllis Schlafly. Who fought against abortion rights and the Equal Rights Amendment. The Association of American Physicians has been around since 1943. It's questioned the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines and has criticized the Biden administration over mask mandates. Phyllis Schlafly's son, Andrew Schlafly, wrote the amicus brief for the two organizations.
0: It reads more like a diatribe than a legal pleading. It accuses D.A. Willis of overseeing a politically motivated grand jury investigation And it asks the appeals court to put a halt to the probe, quote, before this cancer metastasizes to the point the U.S. Supreme Court is unable to rectify it later.
4: There's also Derek Muller, a University of Iowa law professor. He supports Graham's position, too. His brief says investigations are vital to the legislative functions of Congress and to the quality of its work. And it says that if courts are allowed to circumvent the speech or debate clause's protections, it will inhibit lawmakers' ability to propose legislation, debate, and vote intelligently.
0: One thing that caught our eye early on in the Graham litigation was the addition of Don McGahn to the senator's legal team. He's one of three attorneys from the Jones Day law firm in the case. McGahn was Trump's White House counsel for almost two years, from November 2016 to October 2018. Here's McGann speaking to the Conservative Political Action Coalition, describing his duties for the
1: president. I advise the president on a range of issues from constitutional law, executive power, uh, whether or not we can go to war, judicial selection, administrative
3: law, essentially government law that the president has to uh, uh, encounter on a day to day basis.
4: On August 29, 2018, Trump tweeted out that McGahn was leaving that fall after the Senate confirmed Brett Kavanaugh as a U.S. Supreme Court justice. No surprise, McGahn didn't know beforehand the president was going to tweet that out. Here's Trump later taking a question from a reporter who asked about McGahn.
3: Don McGahn's a really good guy. Uh, Been with me for a long time. Privately before this, he represented me. He's been here now. It'll be almost two years, and uh, a lot of affection for Don.
0: Perhaps McGahn's defining legacy as White House Counsel will be getting dozens of vacant federal judgeships filled, and filled quickly, with steadfast conservative jurists. That includes two US Supreme Court justices, Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. In fact, McGahn considered that to be his mission as White House Counsel. Here he is again speaking to CPAC about what types of judges he was looking for.
1: Folks who have demonstrated some sort of courage, some sort of ability to stand strong in the face of adversity. People who you know, when they get on the bench, they will not change and turn into someone else.
4: So now he's a member of Graham's legal team in the case before the federal appeals court in Atlanta, which at this time has 11 active judges. During his one term in office, Trump astonishingly put six of those judges on the appeals court bench.
0: And three of those six judges, Kevin Newsom, Elizabeth Branch, and Britt Grant, were very likely handpicked by McGahn himself. Without his support, they may not now be sitting on a court one step below the U.S. Supreme Court. The 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta typically decides cases with three-judge panels. The court is yet to disclose which judges are hearing Graham's appeal, but we're keeping an eye on it.
4: And we should note that Graham voted to approve those three judges in their Senate confirmation votes. Fulton County prosecutors are to file their response to Graham's appeal for an emergency stay of the grand jury investigation on October 7th. The court has said it will accept no more motions after that. So after October 7th, the court could enter its ruling any day. We're certainly keeping an eye out for that too.
0: RICO has been on the books for more than 50 years. Congress enacted the law to ensnare crime families. The courts began confronting RICO claims shortly after the law was passed, and judges began handing down decisions as early as 1972.
4: One of the first big RICO cases was brought by Texas prosecutors against the so-called Cowboy Mafia, which had imported more than 100 tons of marijuana. In the 1980s and 90s, federal prosecutors, including then-U.S. Attorney Rudy Giuliani, brought RICO charges against numerous mafia figures.
0: These included the Gambino, Lucchese, and Bonanno crime families. In other big cases, the feds brought RICO charges against Maryland Governor Marvin Mandel and New York financier Michael Milken, although Mandel's convictions were later overturned and Milken pled guilty to lesser charges.
4: Georgia adopted its own version in 1980. One of the first big cases was brought in the mid-1990s by the state attorney general's office with the outside help of Atlanta lawyer and RICO expert John Floyd. It resulted in the convictions of two Medical College of Georgia professors who'd been caught stealing millions of dollars in research funds.
0: Still, RICO was not that well-known in Georgia. I remember one big case brought against a group of sex traffickers about 20 years ago. During the press conference announcing the arrests, one official said when one of the defendants was told he'd been charged with RICO, the guy asked, who's RICO?
4: Since then, it's been used against an assisted suicide network a local school superintendent, Atlanta public school teachers, a county sheriff, which we'll talk more about later, and most recently, alleged street gangs. The most notable one came this year against members of Young Slime Life, one of the defendants' is Grammy Award winner Jeffrey Lamar Williams, known as Young Thug.
2: Well, RICO was passed in 1970. Uh, it, it had been an idea that was floated around Congress ever since Prohibition and the rise of what we would think of as modern-day organized crime. But J. Edgar Hoover, if historically, you go back and, and look at his attitude, he was always opposed to any kind of RICO legislation. He argued that there was no such thing as organized crime.
0: That's Jeff Grell a Minneapolis lawyer and University of Minnesota law professor who's also one of the nation's top experts on RICO.
2: But of course, there was. Essentially, I think he wanted to control such investigations and such personalities himself. And so it really wasn't until his power began to wane in the late 60s that something got done and that something was RICO. And when it was passed, the idea was to go after these mafia-type figures, the Vito Corleones, the John Gottis, that type of thing, the stereotypical mobster, and nobody in Congress, I don't think, I was only five years old at the time, but I don't think anybody in Congress could ever foresee how RICO was eventually used. The nutshell was that it, it, it was designed to go after the mafia, but it's been used, <laughs> again, rappers, sex traffickers, corporate entities, pharmaceutical companies, and yeah, now we're seeing against a, a former president, potentially. It, it has a much broader scope than than what I think Congress initially envisioned. And it's that the tail has really begun to wag the dog. Uh, it's hardly ever used in a traditional mafia type of uh, scenario.
4: Grell says that early on, RICO was used effectively against the mob. Now it's completely different.
2: So... Yeah, it was used against John Gotti and Rudy Giuliani famously used it to clean up uh, the fish market in Manhattan. It's been used in the traditional sense many times. But I think personally, when you look at the way organized crime is today, it's so different when you're looking at groups like YSL, the, the Crips and the Bloods and even the Hell's Angels, that sort of thing.
0: Grell explains why and how RICO can be a successful tool wielded by prosecutors.
2: Well, it's effective because you go back to that original idea. We want to prosecute the person that doesn't get their hands bloody. And I use a lot of examples from the Godfather movie just because most people have watched that movie and so they can visualize what I'm talking about. But Vito Corleone on the wedding day sat in his office with the you know, the smoke filled room with the shutters closed with petting his cat. And he was just telling people, you know, go take care of this situation. I don't care. Handle this, handle that. Follow up with this guy. He didn't necessarily know in particular what was being done. He didn't know that somebody was going to be beaten up and left for dead in the gutter. He didn't know that somebody was going to get shot in the head. He didn't know that some judge was going to get bribed. He was just simply Operating and managing this organization and keeping everybody sort of in line, setting the broader policies for the Corleone crime family and that's really what Rico was designed to get at because under traditional conspiracy theories, a guy like Vito Corleone would go to court and he would say, "Yeah, I said, take care of business. you've got me on the microphone on the tape saying, take care I meant sell more olive oil. That's the family business. What do you murder people? Are you crazy? I had no idea that that this was going on. And so you couldn't prove, it was more difficult to prove that intent. But under RICO, it doesn't matter if the Godfather figure knew specifically what was going on.
0: Today, it's different when it comes to gang related RICO cases.
2: You don't have this typical pyramid structure where you've got the Godfather sitting on top of this organization, directing everybody. Modern criminal organizations are flatter organization. The kingpins are actually out dealing drugs. They're actually out murdering people. They're actually out getting their hands bloody, and the power is sort of distributed more broadly. And so that has led to you know, a, a new idea of what an enterprise is under RICO.
4: Grell references the recent racketeering case against former R&B hitmaker R. Kelly, who won multiple Grammy Awards. He was convicted of RICO and sex trafficking for abusing women and minors for decades. In June, he was sentenced to 30 years in prison.
2: And again, you look at the R. Kelly situation where he got out of earlier prosecution saying, oh, you know, uh, I didn't. Well, it doesn't matter if he knew she was underage, but, you know, I thought she had consented. I didn't know she was drugged up. I didn't I didn't know who she whatever he, he had excuses. But when you look at the whole pattern acti- of activity over 20 years, decades, and you say this organization that you admit that you are the head of has engaged in all of this criminal activity. And it's beyond reason to argue that you didn't know what was going on. You were operating and managing this thing, and that will go to the jury because intent is a question of fact that a jury has to decide. And, of course, when you present a jury with this long history that these organizations have, whether it's the Gambino crime family or R. Kelly and his entourage, decades of criminal conduct, it's hard for a defendant to argue I was oblivious to decades of criminal conduct or years of criminal conduct. And so that's why it's been effective because you don't have this hear no evil, see no evil kind of defense that these kingpins could assert before RICO was passed.
0: This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
3: Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration.
1: The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents...
3: Hip-hop's
5: most pulled elements
0: As you would expect, Grell has been following the Fulton County Special Purpose Grand Jury investigation, and DA Fonnie Willis has caught
2: his attention. Well, I I think that the main thing is that she's not afraid to use it.
4: Grell says a prosecutor who obtains a big RICO indictment often gets a lot of attention. And for elected officials, especially ones looking to advance their careers, being in the spotlight can be a good thing, until it's not. The bad
2: part of it is once that spotlight's on you, you better win. And uh, if you fail, that's super, super embarrassing and and it only hurts you. So there's this double edged sword that I think most prosecutors face and that they love the attention Rico gets, but they're afraid to fail with it. And so they're very reluctant to use it and have the you know, have this big explosion in the media only to have uh, the whole case coming down, crashing and burning.
0: But he says that doesn't seem to apply to Fonnie Willis.
2: And I would say that uh, the, the Fulton District Attorney's Office has not had that fear. And obviously, they don't have that fear because they understand RICO. They know how to use it. They're comfortable using it. They've used it many times. And they know how to do a proper risk assessment. Most lawyers just are not that comfortable with RICO. She is. And so I think that's why she uses it. And obviously, she's used it well in the past.
4: It reminds us of what Willis said at a recent press conference in which he announced an indictment against 26 alleged members of a robbing crew called Drug Rich.
5: I'm a fan of Rico I've told people that and the reason that I am a fan of Rico is I think jurors are very very intelligent. I think that they once you know some people don't want to do jury service but once they get there we really find that there are good citizens there they're very smart they pay attention they take these matters serious but they want to know the whole story they want to know what happened they want to make an accurate decision about someone's life and so Rico is a tool that allows a prosecutor's office and law enforcement to tell the whole story and so we use it as a tool so that they can have all the information they need to make a wise decision. So it's a tool I continue to use.
0: Former District Attorney J. Tom Morgan also successfully used RICO in one of the most jaw-dropping cases you'll ever hear about. It led to the conviction of Sidney Dorsey, the former sheriff of DeKalb County, which is where I live just outside of Atlanta. Here's Morgan describing what happened.
1: So Dorsey recruited um, four of his deputies to kill Derwin Brown, who had just defeated him in the Democratic primary. Dorsey was under this convoluted belief that if Brown was assassinated, there would be a special election and he could get elected.
4: At that time, Morgan already had Dorsey on his radar.
1: When Dorsey was arrested for the murder, uh, we had already had a special grand jury for a year looking at the corruption in the DeKalb County Sheriff's Department. And we had many tentacles going in many different directions and all different kinds of corruption, bribery, use of the inmates doing work in his wife's political district, uh, taking money from the commissary, uh, using uh, the staff to do his personal business. What he would do would have his uh, deputies go pick up his children from school, take them to get a Happy Meal, uh, drive them to get their haircuts. He would, uh, if a child was sick, he would have the deputy pick him up and take the child to the office and sit in that deputy's office. The, and he also had deputies to go get his uh, daughters to and from school. One was in Chattanooga and one was at Georgia Southern. So there were just many different violations of the law. And then we had the murder. Morgan says Atlanta
0: lawyer Emmett Bondurant suddenly reached out to him. Bondurant is an icon in legal circles nationwide, and it was his law firm that represented Justin Chapman for free in his bid to overturn his murder conviction and breakdown's first season, Railroad Justice in a Railroad Town.
1: And he called and he said, um, Jay Tom, I'd like for you to talk with one of my partners about your case. And to be honest with you, only out of deference to Mr. Bondurant did I ever agree to meet John Floyd uh, because civil attorneys really know nothing about criminal law, just as criminal lawyers know nothing about civil law. And just because you can try a civil case doesn't mean you know what you're doing in a courtroom, certainly with a murder case. But I, I agreed to spend one hour with this guy named John Floyd. And I corralled John Petrie, who was my chief assistant, And he said, what are we doing wasting our time talking with the civil attorney? We're under fire to get an indictment because we had 45 days from the arrest to have Mr. Dorsey indicted.
4: We've talked about John Floyd before. He helped Fonnie Willis with the RICO case involving test cheating by Atlanta public school teachers and educators. And he did that free of charge. He's now working pro bono for Willis at the Fulton DA's office.
1: So John came in and he started talking about uh, how he had been reading about the case in the papers and looking at it, and this would be a perfect time for a corrupt official to be prosecuted on a RICO charge. And my eyes really glassed over it then. I mean, I've been a prosecutor for 16 years and had never seen anyone prosecuted a, on RICO, and I certainly yeah. had not prosecuted one. And I w- wasn't thinking about learning how to prosecute one. It's just not something that state prosecutors did
4: But Floyd was persistent. The one-hour meeting soon turned into a much longer meeting.
1: And he really walked us through how important and how much of a hammer the RICO statute is, and particularly the Georgia RICO statute. And Petrie and I looked at each other and I said, "Well, John, you know, you're in charge of the corruption part of this trial.
0: Floyd joined the team and with Petrie started drafting the indictment.
1: I'll never forget, it's a Super Bowl Sunday because we had to have the indictment ready by the next Monday morning. And those two gentlemen worked easily eight hours drafting one of the most beautiful documents I've ever seen. And that was the RICO charge against Dorsey. It's 52 type pages long. And uh, a RICO indictment is not like any other indictment because there's a preamble, there's an explanation of the enterprise. And, you know, these two brilliant lawyers and very good. Uh, wordsmith crafted this story that once you read it, you're already ready to vote for guilty. We were the first DA's office to use a RICO charge to go after a corrupt public official.
4: You need to find a defendant committed only two of what are called predicate acts to win a RICO conviction. Floyd had found 46 predicate acts against Dorsey.
0: Because of enormous pretrial publicity, the trial was held in Albany in Southwest Georgia. Morgan says he didn't think Floyd could take weeks off from his law firm to help try the case.
1: And then I said, well, but Mr. Floyd, this trial could take anywhere from three to five weeks. Um, You would have to be there, certainly for all the presentation of the evidence. He said, I'll I'll be glad to. And I said, your partners are going to allow you to take off three weeks from work to go to South Georgia? And he says, I'll make them a lot of money.
4: (laughs) Dorsey was convicted at trial in 2002 of murder and RICO. He was sentenced to life in prison. When asked about the Fulton County investigation of Trump and his allies, Morgan says this. I am
1: sure if there is a RICO indictment to come out Fulton County, it will read like a novel and it will have John Floyd's work all over it. He's a brilliant writer and particularly in writing these RICO charges. It is uh, the preamble, which includes the discretion of the enterprise, is almost like arguing your case before you stand up to argue it, because the judge has to read the indictment to the jurors.
0: So where would RICO fit if charges were brought for what happened in Georgia after the 2020 election? Here's Atlanta lawyer Amanda Clark Palmer explaining how Georgia's RICO statute works. As we've told you, she represents the data firm Sullivan Strickler and members of the Georgia legislature in this Fulton County grand jury probe.
6: Somebody in Georgia can violate the RICO statute in two different ways. First is if you are trying to acquire or maintain interest in or control of any enterprise or property through a pattern of racketeering activity. That's one way. So the enterprise in Georgia, the enterprise can be a governmental agency. Sidney Dorsey was prosecuted. Under the theory that he was trying to maintain control of the enterprise, which was the DeKalb County Sheriff's Office through a pattern of racketeering activity. So the enterprise, you could charge Trump and his associates with committing a pattern of racketeering activity with the goal of maintaining his control of the enterprise, which is the United States presidency. You could do that. So, the second way a person can violate the RICO statute in Georgia is when they um, are employed by or associated with any enterprise and they conduct or participate in the affairs of the enterprise through a pattern of racketeering activity. Under that second definition, the enterprise would be looked at a little differently, I think, because you're talking about people associated with any enterprise. And in that instance, perhaps the enterprise is people who are interested in overturning the results of the 2020 election.
0: Clark Palmer says Georgia's definition of a RICO enterprise is extremely broad, but she says she doesn't see how all the supposed targets of the investigation fall under the RICO umbrella.
6: I think it would be hard to make a racketeering case against certain people that we've heard are targets of the investigation for the reason that the prosecutor is going to have to prove that those people either committed or conspired to commit two separate predicate acts. It seems easier to make a case for Rico against Trump and his lawyers. You could make the case that one predicate act was the phone call, because in the phone call, they were endeavoring to get other people, i.e., you know, Brad Raffensperger, perhaps Ryan Germany, endeavoring to get them to commit a crime, making a false statement, making a false writing, or committing computer trespass, um, in order to help Trump maintain control of the presidency. I think I think even that you know contains a lot of assumptions. You have to assume that that Trump was in fact endeavoring to get Raffensperger to go put something in writing that was false or to change something in the voting system or the computer system that was false. But, but it seems like, okay, you know, that's something where it feels like that could be worked into a predicate act. And then as to a separate predicate act, it could be getting the, you know quote unquote alternate slate of electors to put their names down on a piece of paper and that that would be a false writing because because they would you know presumably affirm that they a were the electors of the state of georgia and b that trump had won the state of georgia so there's at least two predicate acts
4: but clark palmer while conceding that we don't know what the special grand jury knows says she doesn't necessarily see more than one predicate act for the fake electors and she says it may be a stretch to bring a RICO case against the people involved in the breach of elections data in Coffee County. Computer crimes can be predicate acts under Georgia's RICO law. But Clark Palmer says it takes a tortured reading of those statutes to try and make them fit into the Coffee County case.
6: We've never seen anything like this before. So you have very novel legal theories that presumably the prosecutors are looking at and that Other lawyers who are watching the investigation are trying to talk about and speculate about how are you going to apply the criminal code to what happened? And and it's a unique set of circumstances. It's a unique set of acts that we've never seen before. Nobody's really been charged with anything like this before. So these are all theories and areas that are untested. And we're going to find out whether or not they work.
0: Somewhat surprisingly, Jeff Grell doesn't think it's necessary to try and charge Trump in a RICO conspiracy.
2: Why buy a jet plane if you can get to the same point with a bicycle?
4: Grell points out that RICO was designed to target mob bosses who didn't get their hands dirty, who used underlings, together known as an enterprise, to conduct crimes on their behalf. Here's what Grell says about Trump and Fulton County.
2: With the Georgia situation, he did it himself. he called up Raffensberger on the phone and extorted him, you know, in my opinion if if you listen to the phone call uh, and I, I think that there's at least a fact issue there, so as a prosecutor, I would look at it since you've got Donald Trump on the phone making the phone call himself. he's not you he didn't have uh, one of his lackeys do it. it wasn't Eric, it wasn't Don jr. it wasn't Ivanka it was him, and so. Why would you use RICO? Just charge him with extortion. You don't need to go through enterprise and pattern.
0: Grell is right. Establishing a pattern is essential for getting RICO charges to stick. Under federal law, prosecutors must prove that criminal activities were not sporadic or of limited duration. Grell says a pattern of at least two years needs to be established. But that's not the case under Georgia law state appellate court opinions say prosecutors just need to prove two similar incidents of racketeering activity it doesn't necessarily matter how long the scheme took place before we go we have one last thing to share with you a few times a year the ajc conducts political polling with the university of georgia's school of public and international affairs it's a nice way to gauge the attitudes of Georgia voters on various officeholders, candidates, and policies. And this time around, we threw in a question about the special grand jury investigation.
4: The question was worded this way, quote, How much confidence do you have that the grand jury will conduct a fair and impartial investigation?
0: The responses show how deeply divided Georgia voters continue to be. Twenty-two percent of respondents said they had a great deal of faith in the probe, while another twenty-two percent said they had a fair amount of confidence. Meanwhile, slightly more than one-third of respondents said they had very little faith in the inquiry, while less than fifteen percent reported feeling only some confidence.
4: Black voters were nearly twice as likely as white voters to have the most confidence in the investigation while people with a high school diploma or less were the likeliest to have the least faith in it.
0: And slightly more than one in four Republican voters reported having a great deal or a fair amount of faith in the investigation compared with two thirds of Democrats and 45% of independents. And slightly less than half of Republicans said they had very little confidence in the investigation.
4: As a former political reporter, I have a lot to say about polls. They should be read as nothing more than a political snapshot in time and it's worth paying attention to a pollster's sample sizes and the types of people they're talking to. In this particular case, the AJC poll surveyed likely voters statewide, not just in Fulton County, which is where DA Fani Willis will be running for reelection in two years. That said, these numbers are notable because they're pretty much the only public polling we've seen on the Fulton investigation so far.
0: It shows that statewide at least, there's a deep partisan divide in terms of how voters view the investigation. And that perception could be harder and harder to fight as prosecutors get closer and closer to former President Donald Trump.
4: Next, on Breakdown, we'll be back next Tuesday. With this special purpose grand jury investigation, you never really know what's coming next. As always, thanks so very much for listening.
0: You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com, And if you really want to support local journalism particularly our journalism please subscribe to the ajc
4: there's no way we can do this without our subscribers or without our listeners you guys rock thanks so much
0: you know we've gone this whole season without giving credit where credit is due breakdown's wonderful sound engineer is shane backler our podcast producer is jay black thanks go to our editors jennifer brett and dan kleppel to AJC presentation specialist Pete Corson and to the AJC's editor, Kevin Riley. Of course, Kevin co-hosted Breakdown Season 6 with me, a jury of his peers. It's a good one. Be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin.
4: And I'm Tamar Hallerman.
0: This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
3: Ocean Breeze